Hello, and welcome to Tully's Take on History. I'm Dr. Stuart Tully, and today we're going to be talking about country rap music. Now, this is a subject that I've just started research on. I don't believe too many other people have done that much research on it. It's a fairly unknown hybrid genre out there. Now, a lot of this podcast is I'm taking from a paper that I presented at the uh, Gulf South Historical Conference in Pensacola, Florida this past month or two ago. And uh, I'm also going to try something new with putting some music in here. I don't know if it's going to sound good. I'm kind of learning this whole podcasting thing as I go. That being said, uh, let's talk about country rap music. Now, this past summer, the remix of Montello, Little Nas X Hills, Old Town Road broke the record for the longest stay atop the Billboard charts with 19 straight weeks at number one. He actually beat Mariah Carey. The song is a hybrid between country and rap music, with Hill rapping about wearing both a Gucci cowboy hat as well as Wrangler jeans on top of an instrumentation which sampled elements of both genres. Due to the song's success, Hill was invited to perform alongside Billy Ray Cyrus, who was on the remix of the song, at both the 2019 BET Awards and the Country Music Association Fest in Nashville. Hill, originally from Lithia Springs, Georgia, seemingly embodied the idiosyncrasies of rural African Americans, and his music reflected the dynamics of both country and rap. Yet Hill's success was not without controversy from country rap, sorry, from country music purists. When the song was released in the March of 2019, it was initially placed on Billboard's Hot Country Charts, where it rose to number 19, before Billboard moved it from the country charts due to protests from country music labels. To justify the decision, Billboard claimed that the song did, quote, not currently merit inclusion on Billboard's country charts. When determining genres, a few factors are examined, but first and foremost is musical composition. While Old Town Road incorporates references to country music and cowboy imagery, it does not embrace enough elements of today's country music to chart in its current version, end quote. Likewise, Hill was not nominated for neither Song of the Year nor Single of the Year at the 2019 CMA Awards, despite the song's success. Even with Hill's popularity, his mixture of country with rap music was problematic for the gatekeepers of Nashville. Hill's experience was not unique to artists attempting to abridge the country and rap genres. This hybrid, known as country rap, has undergone what I like to say three distinct waves from the time of its inception to the modern day. Though individual crossover and country rap songs have found commercial success, this has not translated into the sustained development of a viable genre. Even though there is tremendous possible overlap between country and hip-hop realms, country rap has been undermined not only by divisions within its audience base over race, politics, and demographics, but also by a music business unable to consistently market music that defies clear categorization. This dynamic was most evidenced during the second wave of country rap music, which began in 2019 with the release of Robert Kid Rock Ritchie's single Cowboy, and ended in 2005 with Warren Bubba Sparks' Mathis's Miss New Booty, a standard rap song by the previously hybrid artist. And also, for the purposes of my study, uh, country rap refers to music that not only combines oral, visual, and content elements of country and rap music, but also the artist, artist embodies a rural perspective in their persona. The first wave of country and rap hybrids began in, two, sorry, in 1985, with a series of novelty songs from each respective genre that par- parodied elements of the other, 
with little attempt to find common ground or bridge the two cultures. A prime example of this period is 1984's Rappin' Duke, which I believe was the first, in which New York-based African-American rapper Sean Brown imitates John Wayne's voice to make rhymes such as, you know what, I'm going to play it right now. You get the point. Uh, the single, which really does not take itself anything more than a novelty song, it was popular enough for Brown to release an entire album of rapping in this John Wayne style. Uh, my research found that it actually weirdly got popular in San Diego, of all places, with the naval bases. Weird, but stranger things have happened in the music business. Uh, this album was 1985. It was called Que Pasa. Uh, didn't really go much of anywhere. On the countryside, there was 1986's Country Rap by the Bellamy Brothers. It, too, utilizes a conventional rap beat, but in addition, also includes steel guitar and other traditionally country music instrumentation. The song was rapped by the duo, who otherwise sang uh, country music, and did little with their lyrics other than make generalizations about country life. Here's an example of it. Hillbillies talking about turnip greens, cornbread, sweet potatoes, pork and beans. Country roads, farm and ranch, drink a little creek water from the branch. We got pickup trucks, chicken clucks, happy even when we're down on our luck. We got fat back, that's a fact. If you don't know, that's a country rap. This song is actually the first to utilize the term country rap to refer to this song. And it actually charts okay. It goes as high as number 31 on the Billboard Country Charts. Uh, the brothers would not follow up the success with uh, further hybrid tracks. Pretty much they stay in country music the rest of their careers. A, a more popular crossover song is 1987's Wild Wild West by Cool Mo D. Uh, cool Mo D was a member of the New York-based Treacherous 3 rap group before the trio disbanded in 1985. Uh, Wild Wild West comes from D's second album, How, Do, How You Like Me Now. Actually charts as high as number four on the Billboard Hip Hop chart and number 62 on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, in the song, he utilizes Western imagery to illustrate the level of danger found in his urban environment. Pretty much he's saying the ghetto is like the Wild Wild West. Uh, the song's music video also asserts this point with Darice, sorry, um, Cool Mo D. His name is Mahanis Darice, but... You can call him Deweese if you want. He is wearing a cowboy hat and riding a horse through the snow through a stereotypical western town before joining up with his similarly attired posse. Unlike later country rap, Deweese does not attempt to link his experience with actual rural life, but rather use perception of the Wild West as a lawless and hazardous place. Um, part of this beat is actually sampled later on in 1999's Wild Wild West by Will Smith, which I guess you could consider country rap, I suppose. Uh, doesn't really have that much element of the country, though. It's more of a standard rap song. Also goes with the Wild Wild West movie, which Will Smith was in in 99. Now, the first hybrid song to really embody the potential of country rap was 1992's Tennessee by the Atlanta-based group Arrested Development. The group, which was otherwise solidly in the alternative, positive, backpack rap, whatever you want to call it, sub-genre, 
was a collective of several artists that was headed by rapper Thomas Speech Todd and DJ Timothy Headliner Barnwell, who served as joint creative heads of most of the group's early work. The song, Tennessee, was written by Todd following the death of his grandmother and brother in short succession and expounds upon the rural areas of the South, as well as the complicated relationship many African Americans feel towards it. For Todd, the rural landscape of Tennessee was both comforting and unsettling, a more primal land where the emotions he was feeling towards the death of his loved ones, as well as the stresses of urban life, could be fully exposed. Uh, here's a sample of Tennessee. That was Tennessee by Arrested Development. Now, the song is actually a pretty big hit. It's commercial and critically successful. Actually hits number one on the Billboard Hip Hop charts and number six on the Hot 100. And the song actually wins the Grammy for Best Rap Performance by a Group or Duo at the 93 Grammys. And the group even wins the Grammy for Best New Artists. Although Tennessee was a success and demonstrated there was potential to be found exploring the experiences of rural African Americans, and ironically also denoted the receding of the first wave of country rap. Arrested Development's subsequent albums struggled to find commercial success, and internal tension caused Barnwell to leave the group in 1996. The success of Arrested Development in Tennessee came at a time when the geography of hip-hop was shifting. Although artists from outside of New York and Los Angeles area had found sporadic commercial success, most rap music in the 80s could be classified as either belonging to one of those metropolitan areas. But the dawn of the 90s had more rappers coming in from different parts of the country, and many for, from the South. By the mid-90s, artists from the Atlanta area were poised to take the lead as the centerpiece of Southern rap, which uh, had taken on the moniker of Dirty South. Unlike its counterparts in New York and Los Angeles, Dirty South rap was more willing for its artists, such as Outkast and the Goody Mob, to embody poverty and expound more upon the Southern experience. Although still utilizing conventional rap beats, Dirty South rappers demonstrated Southern elements in their lyrics, imagery, and particularly in their inflection, uh, their, their mannerisms, their accent, uh, how they pronounce certain words. It sounded stereotypically Southern. And laid a great deal of groundwork for the second wave of country rap to not only find its audience, but also backing from record labels. Uh, I'm focusing mainly on Atlanta for country rap. That is kind of the home of Dirty South rap. Once you hit around 1994 or so, uh, before, though, you do have places like Miami and Houston, which are early rap areas in the South. Uh, in Houston, you have like the Ghetto Boys, Rap-A-Lot Records. I would not really call that Dirty South rap. It's more gangsta, mafioso rap. Uh, same thing in Miami with uh, Uncle Luke, um, the Two Live Crew, Miami, you know, that Miami beat. Uh, that's more of a party rap, not really Dirty South rap. Uh, dirty South rap is kind of based around Atlanta. It's kind of the capital of the Dirty South. The 1990s were also a period of transition for the country music genre, with artists like Garth Brooks and Shania Twain becoming very big commercial successes uh, by fusing country music with the respective elements of rock and roll and pop music. Garth Brooks was like the biggest country guy in the 90s, 
he was not a pure country artist. He was more of a hybrid between country and rock and roll. Shania Twain, one of the biggest female artists of the 90s, she combines pop music with country music. Although country purists decry this uh, kind of, they would call it mongrelization of the genre, there is no denying the popularity of such artists, and Nashville's label saw the potential in mixing genres. Now, although Atlanta and Nashville laid the groundwork for the second wave of country rap, the first upswell actually came not from the South, but from Michigan in the summer of 1999. Robert Kid Rock Ritchie released Cowboy as a single. Now, the album comes, the song comes from his album Devil Without a Cause, uh, his first album signing with, after signing with Atlantic Records. Uh, he had recorded albums since 1988 with independent distribution. Um, Devil's the first one he actually gets nationwide. Ironically, although Devil was most of the mainstream consumer's introduction to Richie, it was actually the culmination of a change in his performance that had been brewing since at least 1996's early morning Stoneface Pimp. Uh, prior to Pimp and Devil, Richie's on-stage persona was solely as a white rapper, very much in the same mold as contemporaries such as the BC Boys or Vanilla, Vanilla Ice. Uh, if you look at Kid Rock's earliest stuff, it is pretty much straight, like, New York-style hip-hop. However, Cowboy and Devil presented the revamped Richie as a leader of, quote, a redneck shit-kicking rock and roll band. Sorry, rock, rock and roll rap band. Now, that's a quote from him. This persona impacted his live stage shows, which Richie had now backed by not only, not only a live band, but also a DJ and live instruments, which are collectively known as his, quote, Twisted Brown Trucker Band. Furthermore, Richie began incorporating Confederate battle flags into his facade, seemingly to show solidarity with the Southern life. Um, kind of an interesting thing for Richie or Kid Rock to do, but considering, um, you know, he's using a lot of Confederate imagery, even though he's like in hip-hop, which is primarily an African-American genre. But then again, him becoming a rapper in the first place was kind of contradictory to his upbringing. Uh, Kid Rock was born in Romeo, Michigan. It's a rural area outside of Detroit to William and Susan Ritchie. Uh, William Ritchie owned several automobile dealerships, and his family had a very comfortable upbringing. Um, for instance, uh, Kid Rock's childhood home was about 5,700 square feet on 5.5 acres. Um, it had an apple orchard on it. Um, I'm sorry, if you're growing up with an apple orchard in your backyard, you're not, um, you're, you're doing okay. You're, you're, you're doing really good. But this whole change of persona was on full display in both the song and music video for Cowboy. In the song, Richie expresses his desire to, quote, move out west and set himself up as a pimp. For Richie, the west represented a landscape where he could reinvent himself, filled with easy money and fulfillment to his sexual desires. Um, you know, it's not that unusual in American historiography. Um, you can know Horace Greeley, Go West Young Man, or even Frederick Jackson Turner's Frontier Thesis. And somewhere a historian is listening to me and they're about to throw their podcast vehicle at the window because I just mentioned Frederick Jackson Turner with Kid Rock. But trust me, it works. It's really a thing. <laughs> That's a little historian joke. Richie continued by asserting his identity not only, sorry, Richie continued by asserting his identity not upon his previous years in the rap world or his privileged upbringing, but rather a lower-class rural America. In the song, he says, quote, I'm not straight out of Compton, I'm straight out the trailer. Uh, the accompanying music video iterated Richie's stance, showing him driving a semi-truck through deserted highways towards an easier life out west. 
aside from his vocal delivery, there were limited elements in Cowboy which alluded to his past in hip-hop. The instrumentation of his song did include record scratches typical of rap music, but also included harmonica and Richie playing a guitar, otherwise eschewing the accoutrements of rapping. While early incarnations of Kid Rock might have been conventionally hip-hop, his persona developed for Atlantic Records was a less affluent and a more rural embodiment. The song was successful, topping at number 82 on the Billboard chart, but Devil Without a Cause was much more successful than the single, and actually went platinum several times over. The music received consistent airplay on MTV's Total Request Live, and brought Richie to many mainstream consumers. Richie's profile was raised enough for him to be included as a performer in the Woodstock 99 concert, and he also toured for a short time along Aerosmith and Run DMC, and his music was featured heavily on the WWF's television programming in this time period. Although Richie had found limited success as only a white rapper, his change of persona to incorporate a rural depiction made him a sensation, albeit a problematic ambassador for southern country elements he claimed to embody. With Richie's success, it was only natural that peripheral acts would also get attention from the record labels. The most immediate reception of this attention was Matthew Uncle Cracker Schaefer, who previously served as DJ of Richie's Twisted Brown Trucker backup band. In 2000, Schaefer released his own solo album, Double Wide. Like Richie, this album marked a departure from the previous persona of a hip-hop DJ to one of a southern rocker. Originally from Michigan suburb Macomb County, Schaefer's upbringing was more middle-class in contrast to Richie's privilege. Still, Schaefer became interested in rap music and toured around the early rap clubs of Detroit in the early 90s, where he first meets Richie. Uh, Schaefer joined the Twisted Brown Trucker Band in 1996, and actually he shows very little creative output outside of DJing. He's not really interested in recording music or anything like that. Uh, the lead single of Double Wide was Follow Me, a very soft-spoken southern rock song with strong country elements such as steel guitar and the instrumentation, and it's this very stark contrast to the more rambunctious music he had performed with Richie. Furthermore, this song contains no hip-hop elements in any capacity, despite his previous career within the genre. Although other songs on Double Wide had a stronger rap influence, the fact that Follow Me was chosen as a lead single demonstrates how non-integral the genre had become to the personas of both Richie and Schaefer. Follow Me was a pretty big hit, very big hit. Tops out at number five of the Billboard charts, and Double Wide goes platinum thanks in large part to the success of the song. The following-up single, Yeah, 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 had more of a rap influence, with Schaefer rapping instead of singing, and was actually expected to perform even better based upon the marketing behind it. Uh, the key thing in this marketing is the music video, which, if you haven't watched this music video before or haven't seen it since 1999 or 2000, I would recommend you see it. Um, it is a cross-promotional vehicle with the Owen Wilson-Jackie Chan film Shanghai Noon. It's got both Jackie Chan and Owen Wilson in this music video, and not just body doubles, like... Legit Kid Rock, Uncle Cracker, and Jackie Chan do junk together. Like, it's it's insane. It's a very expensive music video. It's got a full sale Western set, big time kung fu fighting. Uh, Jackie Chan's in it. His whole stunt team's in it too. But this song is not as popular as Follow Me. It doesn't even break the top 100. Still, both Schaefer and Richie were firmly behind their new hybrid personas, and they found consistently more success than they'd found prelie in hip hop. The popularity of Richie and Schaefer encouraged labels to promote more artists who merge country and rap music. In contrast to Nashville, which was slow to embrace such musicians outside of Richie, Atlanta and Dirty South labels were among the first to find local artists who fulfilled this niche. 
If two white Michiganders could carpet bag their way to success, it was only logical that Southern artists, both black and white, could more authentically embody the region. Uh, I do need to mention, uh, Kid Rock also early tries to put Hank Williams Jr. in one of his videos. Hank Williams Jr. is pretty much Kid Rock's ticket into Nashville acceptability. Um, had it not been for Hank Williams' willingness to become relevant through Kid Rock, Kid Rock probably not have been accepted by Nashville, but boy howdy was he loved by Nashville. But if one artist best represents the dualistic nature of country rap, it's Warren Bubba Sparks Mathis. He pretty much I find to be the apex of second wave country rap music, and his failure to like really resonate with audiences and really find commercial success really marks the climax of country rap music for its second wave. And he really embodies both these genres. Mathis was born in 1977, raised near LaGrange, Georgia, in rural Troop County, about 65 miles southwest of Atlanta on the Alabama border. The demographics and economy of Troop County are representative of a lot of the rural South. Uh, the county seat of LaGrange, it's primarily a mill town. It's got about 25,000 people in it in 2000 when Mathis came to national prominence, with the milk and textile factories providing the bulk of the manufacturing employment. Outside of LaGrange, Troop County has a population of about 35,000 rural residents, with about a 60-40 ratio of white and black residents outside of LaGrange. Uh, Mathis's upbringing was well within these trends, and his father was a school bus driver and farmer, and his mother was a grocery store cashier, and they struggled to make ends meet. He would later describe his parents as working class, but in actuality, quote, upper-lower class. Mathis's childhood was also isolated, with his nearest neighbor, an elderly African-American woman, living well over a mile away. Now, this is not too unusual for the rural parts of the country. Uh, my upbringing is, I'm from Baton Rouge. I'm from mid-city Baton Rouge, Capitol Heights, where are you at? Government Street was my life. Um, <laughs> I did not know too much about the rural parts of this country. Uh, yeah, you know, I drove through them, you know, going to Shreveport whenever I was a kid to see my my grandma and my cousins. I mean, I would drive through the rural areas, but it wasn't until I got married to my wife, who is from a rural part of the state, and moved to a fairly rural area, that I really learned a lot more about rural areas, uh, particularly with her family in Mississippi. Uh, she has a lot of family that live in the rural parts of northeast Mississippi, outside of Tupelo, and it's a very different lifestyle than in the city that you just really aren't aware of. Um, distances are a lot further in the country, and it's not too unusual to be miles away from stuff. I, you know, whenever I was growing up, there was a gas station a block away, two grocery stores within two or three blocks of me. Um, everything was nearby. Everything was close. All the services, you know, doctors, stores, uh, stuff you might need was close by. That's not the case in the rural parts of the country. Now, a majority of the population is not rural. I believe only about 20% of the U.S. population is rural, but there's a significant enough percentage to really justify, you know, inclusion. And a lot of these rural people, they believe, possibly rightly so, that uh, popular culture doesn't really speak to them. And I think that's one of the reasons why country rap gets pretty far. It's because it did have the capacity to speak for them. Uh, we're going to talk about this more later when we talk about country music. But it's really interesting that country music claims to be rural, but oftentimes it's not really speaking for rural folks. Now, going back to Mathis, it's actually through Mathis' neighbor, well, her grandson, 
uh, that he would learn about rap music. Um, basically, his African-American neighbor, she had a grandson who would visit her during the summer. Uh, he, uh, his, The grandson lived around Miami, I believe. Uh, he would bring in rap music, and this is the first time Mathis was ever introduced to it. And he felt an affinity towards the music, and he wanted to express himself in the same manner. Quote, I just love the rawness of it and how they were telling my story. Me, I just wanted to use the rawness of it as a vehicle to tell my story. I wanted people to understand that a lot of the same things go on in rural areas and urban areas in every walk of life. It's just a different place, but the same struggle is going on everywhere. End quote. However, despite Mathis' interest in the genre, high school football took precedence. Mathis was a talented enough player to generate some scholarship interest, but none from the Division I schools he desired. Mathis opted instead to forego college and attempt to work odd jobs to purchase studio time. In actuality, Mathis floundered, getting involved with illegal activities and not recording much music. His former high school teammate, Steve Herndon, had gotten a football scholarship to the University of Georgia, invited Mathis to Athens to live in a spare bedroom in Herndon's apartment to escape the downward spiral Mathis was in in LaGrange. In Athens, Mathis began rapping full-time and rose his profile enough to gain traction in the college town's music scene, as well as attract the attention of Shannon Hodgkins, a former house producer at Atlanta-based rap label So So Def. Uh, Hodgkins is actually a pretty important figure in the third wave of country music, which I'm not going to talk too much about in this podcast. Thanks to Hodgkins' efforts, a demo of Mathis' came to the attention of Jimmy Iovine at Interscope Records in 20, sorry, 2001. Uh, Iovine saw potential in Mathis, but asked Timothy Timbaland Mosley, a rap producer recently acquired by Interscope, for a second opinion. Mosley was immediately interested upon listening to Mathis' demo and expressed a desire to work with the rapper were Iving to sign him to Interscope. Once Mosley was informed that Mathis was white, Mosley demanded Iving sign him immediately, seeing a great deal of commercial potential in such an artist. Iving acquiesced and signed Mathis the following day, and shortly thereafter began extensively working with Mosley in the studio for the first album, Dark Days, Bright Nights. Mosley was as good as his word when it came to the production of Dark Days, Bright Nights. Already known for his creative instrumentations, Mosley incorporated both country and rap sonic elements alongside numerous other genres in his most ambitious production to date. The album's lead single, Ugly, began radio play in the late summer of 2001 and served as the listening public's first introduction to Mathis and the hybrid background he embodied, but also contained a substantial amount of Mosley's handiwork. Even though the song mixed country and rap genres, the main instrument featured in Ugly was not one typically found in either genre. Instead, Mosley used a sitar playing in the India's Bangala style for the basis of Ugly, an instrument that Posley had, had previously used in 2001 with Missy Elliott's hit single, Get Your Freak On. Uh, the song's lyrics iterate Mathis' substance, sorry, stance as both a rapper and poor white trash with a gritty aesthetic. Mathis described being ugly as more genuine and relatable than most of the images promoted by either genre, as well as embodying the rural South. Quote, The song's accompanying music video also embraced the hybrid status, containing scenes of both scantily-cowed video vixens 
typical of rap videos, as well as a Miss Ugly beauty pageant featuring less conventional trailer park women who are seen shaving their mustaches before the pageant. The video showed several scenes of Mathis's rural environment as both a reali- realistic depiction and a source of mirth, all of which contained both black and white country folks. From a bunch of black and white young men mud-rustling together in a pigsty to a mixed-race crowd scene in front of a semi-destitute strip mall, the video iterated that Mathis came from an environment that was both rural and poverty-stricken, but not separated by race. This video also contained cameos from rap artists seemingly to give credibility to Rafa's rapping ability and legitimacy towards more aberrant rap aficionados, even though he was rapping about poor country life. The video and single were successful, getting Mathesis on both BET's 106 and Park and MTV's Total Request Live countdown shows numerous times during the rele- before the release of Dark Days and Bright Nights. Ugly would chart the highest of all the singles from Mathis' first album, topping at number 15 on the Billboard charts, with the album going as high as number 3 before going gold. Yet despite Mathis' success with both country and mainstream music marketing, he was unable to break into country and Nashville. Following the success of Cowboy, Richie had been welcomed into the Nashville music scene. His 2001 album Cocky had its single and video picture, a duet with Sheryl Crow, played extensively on both country radio and the CMT network. Furthermore, in October of 2001, so the same time that Bubba Sparks was coming out, Richie played alongside Hank Williams Jr. on CMT's crossover concert, Special. As Richie eschewed elements in hip-hop and dived deeper into his new persona, he became more ingrained in the national music scene, even though he was an outsider to the region. Yet when it came to Mathis, who was a rural Georgian who could claim more legitimacy as a southerner, Nashville kept its distance. Outside of Richie, country music wanted little to do with most of the second-wave country rap musicians, even though the artists were finding commercial success and demonstrating a market existed for such a hybrid. Although the first of country rap's second-wave artists were white, numerous black artists were a part of the genre. One that predated the second wave but did not get national attention until the success of Richie and Mathis was the group Nappy Roots, which hailed from Kentucky. The quintet initially formed during the mid-90s while its members were students at Western Kentucky University and Bowling Green, and they bonded over a love of rap music. Their first album, Country Fried Kess, was self-financed and released independently in 1998, selling primarily around the university. Despite the album's title, the music on Kess was not country-inspired, but rather conventional hip-hop drawing upon frontman Willie Skinny DeVille's Hughes' urban environment outside of Louisville. The album sold well enough to attract the attention of Atlanta Records, who signed, the, who signed a record deal in around 2000. Although Kess was a standard rap record, Atlantic pushed the quintet towards incorporating country elements into their music, seemingly to continue on with success that Atlanta had found with Richie and Schaefer. There was pushback at first from the group, who felt that they, since they were primarily from Louisville, the country moniker would not apply to them. Uh, they're from Louisville. I mean, they're from you know, just urban parts of Louisville. However, they relented once the label insisted that it would help them gain record sales. According to Hughes, quote, people from Louisville don't consider themselves country, but if you go outside Kentucky, people think you're country. Atlantic said, just play into it. You're from Kentucky, so play it up. And that's what got us off the shelf. Their first album with Atlantic was 2002's Watermelon, Chicken, and Grits, which heavily featured their new country persona. 
The lead single from the album was All Nall, produced by Atlanta Dirty South rapper Mainstay. Sorry, he's not a rapper, he's a producer. Uh, Phelan Jazzy Faye Alexander, who introduced the group with a track that sounded to critic Nathan Rabin as, quote, soulful, organ-drenched slice of downhorn hip-hop blues. Uh, the, the song's lyrics detail the group's stance as embodying rural poverty. Quote, a damn shame, gotta grind everything and everything. Jimmy Crack Corn crossed the county line with Mary Jane. A long time gravel road to cash and fame, sold my soul. To hell and back, back and forth, same jeans and nappy fro. The accompanying music video portrayed the group as wearing jeans and overalls with cowboy hats, rapping outside an impoverished rural country landscape in Kentucky. There was no subtlety to this imagery. Atlanta was positioning nappy roots as exemplifying the rural African-American experience. This song was a moderate success, topping out at number 51 on the Billboard chart. The album's second single, Poe Folks, which contains similar themes and imagery to All in All, but with a slower, more gospel-inspired instrumentation, charted better by reaching number 21 on the Billboard chart. Um, Poe Folks also has Anthony Hamilton uh, singing the hook. Anthony Hamilton is another interesting rural, soul, African-American person that comes around this time period. Now, one of my personal favorites, probably the artist that got me into thinking about this as an object of study, uh, they're an African-American country rap act. They come to prominence in 2003, is The Field Mob, with their album From the Ruta to the Tudor, reaching number 33 on the Billboard chart and becomes certified gold. The duo, comprised of Sean J. Johnson and Darren Smoke Crawford, was originally from Albany, Georgia, in Daltrey County, in the southwestern part of the state. Uh, that's where Ray Charles is actually from. The demographic of Daltrey were akin to those of Troop County, where Bubba Warren Sparks Mathis hailed, with the exception that about 70% of the residents were African American. The duo took their name from a rural section of Albany called The Field, which, according to Crawford, was, quote, a place in Albany where there ain't no projects. It's just a little part of country part of town, but it's rough. That's our hero living, the field life. Prior to 2002, Crawford and Johnson took the standard route to the music business. They recorded their first single, Project Dreams, in 1999 to Southern House Records, a record store in Albany with a small recording studio attached. The single was a modest hit around their hometown and drew the attention of the New York-based MCA Records, who signed the duo in late 1999, Seeming to add a southern rap group at a time when Dirty South continued its popularity on the national stage. In fact, uh, Field Mob is the first southern rap group to be signed by a New York label like this. Although the duo was from a rural environment, their early music did not bring much attention to that fact. Their first album with MCA, uh, 2001 613 Ashy to Classy, was indeed in line with other Dirty South productions in both content and imagery but did not contain overt references to rural or country life. Likewise, the music video MCA produced for Project Dreams was upfront with its depictions of poverty, but did not do so from a rural standpoint. Now, this dynamic changed in 2002 with their single Sick of Being Lonely, in which both the song and music video dramatically play up the duo's rural roots. This song, once again produced by Phelan, uh, Jazzy Faye Alexander. And by the way, side note, Jazzy Faye is a producer in this time period who is everywhere and does not get the respect he deserves. Uh, Jazzy Faye is an amazing producer in the rap world and the country rap world. Um, he gets overshadowed, I think, by Little John later on. But we'll talk about that later. 
this this new single "Sick of Being Lonely" was crafted for widespread nightclub and radio play, and utilizes the country roots for its humorous effect. Uh, for instance, the music video begins with Crawford and Johnson speaking to each other, each other in a very thick country accent, an accent so thick that subtitles are provided to translate the dialect into more understandable English. Uh, the video also depicts the duo as bumpkin outsiders to an otherwise posh nightclub. They're committing faux pas, such as bringing a pig on, on a leash to the club, uh, attempting to bribe the bouncer with a jar full of coins and paper clips and things. Uh, it's got a cameo by the late, great John Witherspoon. Rest in peace. He only died about a month ago. Um, I'm going to actually play a little bit of the song. And a funny side note, whenever I first presented this paper, um, the the panel chair was not prepared for me to recite the lyrics of uh, Baby, you looking good, more gooder than a plate of neck bones, tenderized and yummy, and she laughed her head off. She thought it was the funniest thing she'd ever heard. Uh, this song was very successful as a single. It gets at number 18 on the Billboard single chart. And although Sick of Being Lonely was a novelty song, other songs on Ruta demonstrated more introspective. Uh, such as It's Hell, in which the duo raps about social justice and racial profiling from a rural southern lens. Uh, Phil Bob could be classified primarily as Dirty South rap for most of their catalog, but their rural elements were prevalent in 2002, demonstrating how marketable MCA felt such attributes could be at the time. A third African-American rapper with elements of country rap during this time was Lavelle David Banner Crump. Born in Jackson, Mississippi to the Jackson District Fire Chief, Crump's upbringing was a comfortable, middle-class urban lifestyle, not typical for neither country nor rap musicians. Uh, Crump attended college at Baton Rouge Southern University, where he served as student body president before graduating in 1996. Crump also rapped in between his studies at Southern, but it was not a major interest for him, and he was more interested in following the path of middle-class respectability set up by his parents. Um, he actually went to grad school for a while after um, graduating from Southern. He was I believe he was getting a financial degree somewhere in Virginia. Uh, Crump did not start to take more seriously music until 2000 with the release of his first independent record, then Firewater Boys, Volume 1. Uh, from there, Crump started to attract more attention from national labels, mainly as a rap producer, before ultimately signing with Universal Records around 2002. Um, probably they desired Southern rap artists as part of the trend because all the other labels were getting him as well. Uh, his first album with Universal was 2003's Mississippi, The Album. And although the album's lead single was Like a Pimp, a song typical for the genre, Crump delved into rural poverty and racial dynamics of his state in subsequent tracks. Uh, for, for instance, Crump rapped about Mississippi, The Album's titular track that, quote, We're from a place where Medgar Evers lived and Medgar Evers died. We're from a place where the rebel flag still ain't burning. New schools where the black kids still ain't learning. Likewise, in Cadillac on 22s, Crump detailed the state's history of lynching. Quote, Lord, they hung Andre Jones. Lord, they hung Riddle Johnson. Lord, I want to fight back, but I'm so sick of bouncing. Lord, I'm sick of jumping. Lord, just please tell me something. End quote. Despite these potentially uncomfortable lyrics, the album sold quite well, topping out at number eight on the Billboard album chart. Like Field Mob, 
Uh, Banner could conceivably be classified as a Dirty South artist, but his music contained multiple lyrical and sonic elements that was either rural or country. Despite the general popularity of Mathis, Nappy Roots, Field Mob, and Crump, their music faced a barrier when it came to crossover into country radio and CMT. From 2001 to 2003, all four of these acts had their music videos played on regular rotation on BET and MTV, with the artists appearing in person on the channel's respective flagship live music video programs, 106 and Park and Total Request Live. Likewise, their songs were played on both urban and top 40 radio stations. But unlike Richie, who found immense acceptance in Nashville, country radio and CMT refused to air this music. Although the songs might contain lyrics and sonic elements representative of the rural experience, Nashville had made it clear it was not interested in promoting such acts, with the exception of Richie. In the midst of this dividing line, Mathis was preparing to release a second album, Deliverance, which would ideally cement country rap as a viable genre and get the acceptance from Nashville and open up its promotional pathways. In contrast to the first album, which mostly applied his usual unique instrumentations are typical of most genres, Deliverance extensively utilized conventional country and even bluegrass music elements such as banjo, steel guitars, harmonica, and fiddle. For instance, the lead single, Jimmy Mathis, sampled the recognizable harmonica section from the 1970s country song Stone Fox Chase by Area Code 615. The lyrics were more introspective, reflecting a more completely more complexity and nuance regarding life in rural America. Upon its release in the September of 2003, the album was highly regarded by critics in both pop and urban music publications, many of whom praised Mosley's production and Mathis's lyrics. Seeing the positive reviews, Interscape expanded its extensive resources marketing the album, believing that it would be an effective crossover and gain traction in country music media. This belief manifests in the music video for the title track, which extensively draws upon the imagery from the 2000 film Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which was aired regularly on CMT. Yet despite these efforts, country radio and CMT remained barren for Mathis. Although the album debuted at number 10 on the Billboard chart, it floundered afterward. In trying to fully push this hybrid between country and rap genres, it ended alienating a music system designed to promote categorization of music. Mathis would later state Deliverance, quote, kind of fell between the cracks of all the different radio formats. I mean, how do you promote it? Do you promote it like a traditional rap project, where the rap people are saying it's too rock? Do you promote it like a rock record, where the rap people are saying it's too rap? There was a lot of confusion. The failure of Deliverance to become a commercial hit was a turning point in the genre. Although rap in general, and Dirty South slash Atlanta rap in particular, had demonstrating a willingness to engage with country music, the sentiment was not shared by Nashville and country media. Deliverance was mainly marketed through the typical MTV and BT channels, but not on CMT and country radio, which was not willing to engage with the genre despite its popularity and marketing. Deliverance missed out on a great deal of its potential audience because of the divisions in the music business. However, in 2004, a year after Deliverance's failure to cross over into country music, a series of releases denoted the beginning of Nashville's befuddled embrace of the genre. In the summer of, ye- of that year, the country music duo of Big and Rich, made up of Big Kenny Alfin and John Rich, released the music video for their single Save a Horse, Ride a Cowboy from their debut album Horse of a Different Color. The duo are part of an artist enclave known as the Music Mafia, a loose affiliation of self-described national outcast whose personas did not fit the typical country music mold. 
This group fused together multiple genres, including rap music, which was evident in the music video for Save a Horse. Although the music video has the performers wearing prototypical country music gear such as jeans and cowboy hats, it also includes low riders and scantily clad video vixens more prevalent in rap music videos. But unlike previous releases from other artists, the song received considerable airplay on CMT and country radio. Bolstered by the success of the song and album, which topped at number 6 on the Billboard chart, more members of the Music Mafia received recording offers from Nashville Studios, wanting to piggyback off the success of Big and Rich. Among these was country rapper Cowboy Col- Troy Coleman, who appeared in a non-rapping capacity in the video for Save a Horse. Originally from the Dallas suburbs, the African-American Coleman began his career rapping at fraternity parties while student at the University of Texas at Austin. After graduation, Coleman met John Rich in 1993 at a Dallas music bar where both men were performing in separate acts. The two kept in touch once Rich moved to Nashville in the mid-90s, and Coleman sporadically visited the city before permanently moving in the summer 2004 due to the success of Big and Rich, which resulted in his own record deal with Warner Brothers. Uh, fun fact about Coleman, right before he got uh, his record deal, he was working as a manager at a footlocker. Also, I do need to mention the success of Gretchen Wilson. Um, Redneck Woman was the song that came out around 2004. Just to show how Kid Rock got ingrained in Nashville. Um, in the song Redneck Woman, she says that she had posters of Kid Rock as one of her idols and posters of him on his wall growing up. Uh, Kid Rock is only four years older than Gretchen Wilson, so it's very unlikely she had posters of him growing up. Uh, especially if she had heard of him, it would have been as a rapper, and she is not showing a rapper element of it. Now, going back to Coleman, uh, Coleman's first album was Locomotive. It was released in 2005 with uh, his single, I Played Chicken with the Train. Uh, It's interesting in the single because here, Coleman is talking as though he's the first person to mix country and rap elements. He calls it hip-hop. And it's kind of problematic. I'll play a clip. Now, if you didn't catch it, he says that, uh, you know, he's good because he's already been on the CMAs and Tim McGraw likes him, which is really not something you'd say if you're trying to attract a rap audience, but mainly to appease a country audience. The production of Locomotive was handled by Coleman and John Rich. Uh, They didn't get producers outside of country music. Although the album was of a middling success, Coleman was accepted by Nashville, appearing in the next year to co-host the Nashville Star Reality TV show. And his music was also more covertly political than previous country artists, with Coleman appearing on the 2005 song Our America, alongside Big and Rich. Uh, that is a weird song. Pretty much he's reciting parts of the Constitution mixed with the national anthem. Um, it's I guess it's similar for country music, the patriotic stuff, but kind of unusual for rap music he also rewrote his song um, Tickle the Train he called it Raising McCain 
uh, for the 2008 Republican National Convention. Although Coleman appeared to be embraced by the national music scene, oh yeah, I do need to mention in 19, sorry, in 2006, he's the first new African American to be on the Grand Ole Opry since Charlie Pride in 1967. Um, I think since then they haven't had too many. Uh, Darius Rucker, but yeah, the Grand Ole Opry doesn't have a lot of black musicians on it, which is weird because the first black musician ever on the Grand Ole Opry was a black country fiddler, so go figure. Uh, Coleman's music was not played on rap and pop media. In assuming inverts of the experience had by most second-wave country rap musicians, Coleman's music videos were aired on CMT, but were dismissed by BET and MTV. Coleman's career demonstrated that for most genre-bending musicians, Nashville was a closed shop. He's pretty much the exception that proved the rule. And once Coleman fulfilled the quota for an African-American artist, there was really little interest in bringing in more. By 2006, the second wave of rap of country rap music had begun to recede, with his acts struggling to replicate the success they'd found for only a few years prior. Many were dropped by their labels due to either corporate restructuring or less than expected album sales. Uh, Nappy Roots and Feel Bob both tried to revitalize their careers after being dropped from national labels by signing with independents, but neither found album sales or critical acclaim to the same level they had found previously. Uh, Lavelle David Banner Crump was able to stay with Universal, but his subsequent releases were more in line with the expectations of Dirty South Rap, downplaying country and rural elements in his lyrics. Uh, not totally, though. Uh, he will occasionally, whenever he does a guest spot on a song, kind of iterate you know, more country elements. Warren Bubba Sparks Mathis initially followed a similar path. Mathis was dropped from Interscope after Deliverance's sales failed to reach expectations. Uh, he signed with Purple Ribbon Records in 2005, uh, that's from Big Boy, Antoine Big Boy Patton from Outkast. Uh, it's through Virgin Records. His first album with Purple Ribbon, entitled The Charm, third album, Three Times the Charm, was a total departure from his earlier work, pretty much because it eliminates almost all country elements, and pretty much focusing entirely on a Dirty South song, sound. Uh, their first single, Miss New Booty, is representative of this change. Uh, produced by Michael Mr. Collie Park Crooms, the song lacks any mention of Mathis's rural roots in its lyrics or music video, but rather keeps the attention on, let's just call it, women's posteriors. Although the single was the biggest commercial success of Mathis's career at number seven, its notoriety did not translate to the album. He would actually ultimately leave uh, Purple Ribbon in 2007 and try to make his own record label, New South Entertainment. Doesn't bring acclaim what he had done earlier. Uh, Cowboy Troy Coleman's solo video following the release of Locomotive was underwhelming at best. Um, his most endearing legacy is his weekly performance on ESPN's College Game Days, the theme song of Coming to Your City, alongside Big and Rich. In the midst of this downturn, um, Robert Kid Rock Rich and R Matthew Uncle Cracker Schaefer continued their embrace of Nashville by stripping all rap elements from the work and highlighting their ambassadors as Southern culture. Um... Uncle Cracker really doesn't record anymore. Kid Rock does sporadically, and he's gotten way more involved in Republican politics. So, go figure. Although the second wave of country rap had fully receded by 2006, elements of it had remained in the popular music scene. By the time of Old Town Road, country rap had developed into an under-the-radar subgenre, with an infrastructure headed by Jason Colt Ford, Brown's uh, Average Joe's Records, which specialize in signing country rap artists. 
Although these third-wave country rappers did not reach the commercial success of their second-wave counterparts, these acts had more consistent returns with an infrastructure that eschewed Nashville's conventions. However, unlike second-wave country rap, the music of third-wave was exclusively white, rural, and had a strong political bent, which occasionally ventured into elements of white supremacy. And that is weird. Um, I've listened to some of these third-wave country rappers who, like are saying pretty white supremacist stuff while they're rapping and sampling like old hip hop songs. And it, it's weird to be like a rap connoisseur, but not think much of African Americans. And these new third wave rappers are, um, not very well liked by the second wave rappers. A lot of times they feel at odds with the genre they helped to create, uh, most notably Bubba Sparks. Uh, Bubba Sparks does not like being told, oh yeah, hey, you're, you're, you're one of the earliest of these third wave you know, country rap guys, because he actually recorded with uh, Colt Ford's record label for a little bit, but then he left because he did not like... It gets way too political, and there's some articles out there you can read. Rolling Stone did a pretty good article about how country rap has gotten very radical. Now, the recession of the second wave of country rap happened for several reasons. The first was a general downturn in the recording business, starting in the middle of the decade, as a result of the rise of digital distribution. Album sales in particular took a hit as customers could now purchase individual songs piecemeal from iTunes or other online retailers, as well as illegal download sites. This was disproportionately felt by these country rap artists who often did not have revenue streams from record labels outside of album sales. A second reason was that the core demographic, the core customer base for this music, were less affluent rural Americans, both black and white. They're never a very large demographic, and they don't have a lot of purchasing power. But the primary cause for the recession of the second wave of country rap was Nashville's unwillingness to embrace both the genre and its artists, coupled with a lack of marketing infrastructure for the music. Although country music started to have more hip-hop elements integrated into its music, such as Jason Aldean's Dirt Road Anthem, Blake Shelton's Boys Round Here, Brad Paisley's Accidental Racist, and the remix of Cruise by Nelly in Florida, Georgia Line, this did not translate into allowing rappers to sign recording deals with Nashville labels, with Cowboy Troy as a sole exception. Without record labels and producers dedicated to advancing the genre, country rap and rappers had to depend on a, public, on a publicity system that was heavy on categorization and unable or unwilling to promote acts which not neatly comply with preconceived notions. Although individual country rap songs might be a hit, this did not translate into sting power for either the artist or the genre without such an infrastructure. And really, outside of Average Joe's records, there isn't an infrastructure for country rap music. And it's very much a subgenre, kind of a southern version of the Insane Clown Posse and the Juggalos. Uh, that's something I'll talk about another day because I don't have the time. Now, Nashville's hesitancy towards country rappers was due in part to demographic factors. The average country music fan was older, more affluent, and more committed to older technologies than their pop or rap counterparts. At a time when digital distribution was driving down physical media sales numbers, CDs of country music remained steady. Although a country artist might not have as high sales as their pop or rap counterparts, they could be considered more consistent. Appealing to the sensibilities of this, quote, bass pro-bourgeoisie, was necessary for national record labels to remain solvent in otherwise turbulent times. 
Once Nashville felt it was necessary to bring in a country rapper, the patriotic Republican elements of Coleman were overly emphasized, as he would be least likely to upset this audience base. Now, the Bass Pro Bourgeoisie is a term that I coined, and I'm actually doing more research on them. <clears throat> I found that whenever I was looking at the audience base for country music, most of its audience base is living in suburban areas, which is not too surprising. Uh, according to the latest numbers, about 20% of the U.S. population lives in rural areas, about 30% live in urban areas, and about 50% of the country live in these exurban suburban areas. Now, what's most interesting <clears throat> is that not only are the people buying country music not necessarily living in the country, a lot of the people who make the country music are from the country as well. Now, they have to appeal to these sensibilities, but it's almost like they're selling a lifestyle or an imagined place instead of reality, but it claims to be authentic. Now, Bass Pro Bourgeoisie is the people who may be two or three generations removed from actually living in rural areas. Uh, the the kind of nomenclature I use is it's the people who drive, you know, these seventy, eighty thousand dollar pickup trucks to their job in the city. They never haul anything. If they do, it's maybe a boat once in a while. These are not work trucks. It's more of a status symbol than anything else. I've found that they have a disproportionately large impact in comparison to their numbers, but their numbers are substantial. Likewise, they claim affinity towards country elements, rural elements, country living, you know, living on the farm, living, you know, mine work uh, in the bluegrass areas. But their family might be two or three generations removed from that, uh, possibly even more. It's a very interesting element that I'm doing further study on, and this country rap kind of gets into it. And the ebb of flow of country rap's second wave demonstrate how the genre was more than a mere novelty, and actually had the capacity to speak to the experiences of rural poverty regardless of race. Despite its inability to find a sustained commercial presence, country rap had merit, and displayed the complex racial, political, and economic realities of rural Americans. Furthermore, the experience of artists such as Nappy Roots, Phil Mob, and Lavelle David Banner Crump provide insight for the unique living circumstances of rural African Americans, particularly from the Gulf South and showed how such experiences could be commercially profitable, albeit for only a short window of time. Although the hybrid songs such as Old Town Road will undoubtedly continue to be sporadic hits, the experience of the heyday of country rap's second wave show the complex and often contradictory elements in not only American commercial music business, but American society as a whole. And like I said, I'm doing more research on this. Um, I'm probably going to expand this article to a couple more pages, do a deep dive on some other artist, probably get it published somewhere. I don't think I'm going to turn this into a book. But I think the Bass Pro Bourgeoisie is something I will be investigating much further. And I think it's, like I said, it's a very impactful group of people who have a disproportionately large impact on American society. So for that, for this rather long Tully's Take on History, I'm Dr. Stuart Tully. Have a great day.